So before we get into our study tonight, um, you know, we've been dealing with eschatology, so the study of things pertaining to the last days uh, for the past three weeks, four weeks, I think it's been, because we've been in Mark chapter 13. Next week we'll be in Mark chapter 14, so we'll kind of move on beyond that. Though I do talk about eschatology quite a bit here because I believe that we're living in the last days. I believe that we're on the threshold of eternity. I believe that Jesus is going to come any moment. I hope it's soon for his bride. That said, it could become, it could be a very complicated topic if we're not listening to the right sources or reading the right source. I'm not saying that you need to take everything I, I say as I challenged you on Sunday. Be as the Bereans, you know, listen to what's being taught, but then search the scriptures to see if these things are so. There are many who are really confused about Bible prophecy, and then they write things like this. This was sent to not only me, it's, it was addressed to the elders of CCOH, and it has our address on it. And it's entitled The Harlot of Revelation. And then it has uh, 1912 Monterey. And then there's a little space, which I thought that's probably a space for a state. I'm, I'm assuming this was an address, but though I wasn't sure if it was an address or not. And then we have another number that looked like a zip code. And so I looked it up. I thought, well, you know, maybe, maybe it was written in uh, 1912. You know, so I, I looked up that, and then finally, I just punched in my phone, you know, 1912 Monterey, and then I put in the last numbers, which was a zip code, and it showed me the very house <laughs> in South Pasadena, California, so that's where that little space would be for California. But anyway, as I was reading through this, you know, this fellow, uh, boy, so confusing, he begins by quoting verses out of Genesis and then Revelation. So he's saying, you know, this is that, this is that, this is that. Kind of through the whole thing. A lot of verses, a lot of verses, and then some comments. And it's really, frankly, hard to follow. Really hard to follow. And then he kind of goes off and he, he talks about, well, he has this little outline. You know, we have the outline in the book of Revelation. Um, we have the white horse. He says, the white horse, Adam is given dominion. The red horse, the serpent initiates hostility. Black horse, Adam is exiled from garden boundaries. Pill horse, Cain kills Abel. You see how confusing that is? I mean, it has absolutely nothing to do with what we're seeing really in the book of Revelation. And then he goes on to talk about... Um, the church and Israel, and it's very, very strange, strange stuff. He asks more questions and answers questions. Why am I bringing this up? Be careful of stuff like this. There's a lot, there's a lot of things like this. You know, every year, the Seventh-day Adventists will put on a prophecy uh, week, you know, and uh, I, I think that, you know, because of where they're located in town here, and they'll have it on their ban they'll have a banner up or whatever. And people who are interested in eschatology are going to go to a conference like that, or a week long, you know, meetings like that because they want to know. I think a lot of people want to know what in the world's going on, and and so you go to something like that, and then you get kind of the Seventh Day Adventist little twist on things. And that is, you know, the mark of the beast. Well, the mark of the beast is actually Sunday worship. And so you have to be so, so careful about the sources that you're listening to when it comes to eschatology. Now, this is true of all Bible teaching, right? But especially when it comes to eschatology, because there's a lot of really bizarre things out there. And I'll tell you, you know, I made a comment on Sunday as we were going through it. Um that the more you study Bible, the more you study Bible, prophecy, things begin to click for you. And then you begin to realize, boy, the Lord, and I, I made the kind of tongue-in-cheek joke, I said, the Lord knew who he was dealing with, us. So he made it simple. 
You know, it's like, I want you to understand these things, so I'm going to make it simple. And he repeats himself over and over again. In this fellow's little book, he talks about the uh, 1,290 days, so talking about, we would say, tribulation, uh, 42 months, uh, three and a half years, time, times, three and a half times, and then he says, a thousand years. He says they all speak of the millennial kingdom. I mean, he really has no idea which end is up. And uh, yet he, I don't know if he was listening. You know, it's not like we have a, 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 a lot of people that are listening to our, uh, you know, YouTube teachings. But he might have been the one and thought that he would, you know, send that out so that we could get straight. But anyway, be careful. Well, we are continuing our study on topical study of uh, biblical discipleship. We're going to be finishing this up. Where is Nate at? Oh, there. <laughs> In your spot. <laughs> Sorry. Um, do you have another week of? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Another week, and then I, I'll do probably another week, and then um, and then Nate's going to be doing. Did I say once a month or? Okay, once a month. He's going to be doing like a prophecy update. So current event type of things. That will be on a Wednesday night. So he'll be doing that. And then we're going to be moving into the book of Jeremiah. And we will also be moving back downstairs. I know these chairs are really, really comfortable. So listen, you got to do what I do downstairs. Bring a really nice fluffy pillow to put on those chairs down there because they're not comfortable at all. But we're going to move down there because fall is upon us and we're going to have our, we'll have our coffee and our tea and the comforts of all that down there. And to be honest, it's easier to heat that space than to try to heat this. So we're frugal. Anyway, here we go. Chapter 4 of 1 Timothy. Paul, of course, writing to Timothy, verse 1, he says, Now the Spirit expressly says, in latter times, some will depart from the faith. Now, we know this. I read the scripture quite often. I know Nate refers to it quite often. You hear this quite often in the days in which we live. As I was reading it tonight, before you all came down, I was thinking, the people that depart from the faith, Will they know that they're departing from their faith? Or will it be kind of this thing to where I haven't departed? I think there's probably a lot of people, you know, if you, if you take to heart the stats of folks who claim to be believers and yet they don't believe in the Bible or they believe that Jesus is not the only way to the Father. But it says that they depart from the faith, and this is how they depart, giving heed to deceiving spirits. Now that sounds really sinister, doesn't it? They're not just departing, they're they're clinging, they're, they're taking hold of something else, and the something else that they're taking hold of are deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. And I was thinking of how there are many doctrines of demons today i just mentioned i I think uh two of them but one of them is universalism so that all people in the end all people are saved it doesn't matter if you believe in jesus or you don't believe in jesus even though jesus was the one who said i am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father but through me he was very narrow he says uh, the gate you know the road the the way it's a narrow way there are few who find it you know the Broadway, that's the way that's easy to go. Many go that way, you know. And, and um, so I was thinking of the deceiving spirits, the de- doctrines of demons. I was thinking of the things that have been embraced by many people today who profess to be Christians. I think of um, the mindfulness practices. You know, it, it, there's nothing new under the sun. Solomon said it. Uh, they're just repackaged. And so, you know, what what we would call, you know, back when I was a young teenager, you know, kind of Eastern mysticism, it really hasn't changed at all. It's just been repackaged. Uh, when I was a teenager and I was into transcendental me- meditation, 
it was packaged, even then in the 70s, in the mid-70s, it was packaged as something that was scientific, you know. You could meditate for 20 minutes and it would be like you took a nap for two hours, you'll be refreshed, you know, you'll have this insight, you know. And they were saying, it's not religious, it's not religious. But in order to get your mantra, you had to bring an offering. Doesn't that seem strange? When have you ever heard of an offering being given to something scientific? You'd bring an offering and then you would receive your mantra. And then you were told never to tell anyone your mantra. And I didn't know until years later when I was reading a magazine from the church that my wife was saved in. And it was one of the secretaries of the church there who was into transcendental meditation. And she was kind of one of the, you know, American, you know, kind of high-ranking disciple of Maharishi Yogi. And she said the reason that they tell you not to share your mantras because there's only seven mantras. And so they make it sound like it's a special thing, you know, it's only between you and, you know, your whatever. And each mantra is the repeating of a Hindu deity. It's not religious, though. I think of the mindfulness. You could go to the Mayo Clinic and learn about uh, mindful uh, you know, practices and stuff. And yet there are many Christians that say, oh, there's nothing wrong with that. It helps me center. Where do we even find that term in the Bible, centering, you know? So you have universalism, that would be more on a religious side. You have the mindfulness, that's more of kind of the Eastern mysticism. But they're all doctrines of demons because they're not in the Bible. You can't find them. They're not taught in the scriptures. And so he says this, he goes on, he says, that they, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Something happens to a person when they depart from the faith and they cling to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Something happens to their conscience. Their conscience becomes seared. Things that they would never, you know, take part in, now they're willingly taking part in. They're open to a lot of things that they never would have been in, uh, open to in the past. Look at verse 6, same chapter. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of, look at, and of the good doctrine. So the good doctrine is in contrast, obviously, to the doctrines of demons. But Timothy, you'll be nourished in the, in the word of faith and of the good doctrine which, have, which you have carefully followed. And he says, but reject profane old wives' fables. And, and here's the point I wanted to get to. And exercise yourself toward godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things. Having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially those who believe, these things command and teach. Last week, if I recall, correct me if I'm wrong, I wanted to talk to you beforehand, but you're upstairs. But last week, as I was listening to Nate's teaching, I was thinking, uh, here we go. He has no idea. We don't get together. We, we never get together and say, I'm going to be teaching this. You teach that. We just don't do that. We don't do that with anything. We don't do that with our worship team. And we just love to sit back and watch how the Lord orchestrates it. Because it's the Lord's church. It's not our church. And he has a way of orchestrating it. Last week, some of the scriptures that Nate had us turn to, I thought, because I knew where I was going, and I thought, I'm going to be covering some of those verses. Whereas Nate, the approach that he took last week was the disciples' prize. Wasn't that as what was what was coming, you know, for us as disciples? And and my approach tonight is the disciples' purpose. So so the the disciples' prize, oh boy, we have that we're gonna stand before the Lord, the beam of seat and and receive, you know, rewards or, or lose rewards. It has nothing to do with salvation, but, but it's going to be a glorious, glorious thing. 
But for the disciple, we have responsibilities. In fact, let me read verse 7 and 8 again out of the New Living Translation. It says, do not waste time arguing over godless ideas and old wives' tales. Instead, excuse me, train yourself to be godly. Physically, our physical training is good, but training for godliness is much better, promising benefits in this life and in the life to come. So, Nate talked about the athlete last week, because, of course, there's many scriptures from Paul that deal with the athlete athletics um, Paul obviously loved the athletic games and so you think of the athletes in the you know the the Olympic games or whatever the equivalent equivalent of that was at that time they no doubt lived highly disciplined lives you know guys I'm blown away today is everything has changed Absolutely everything has changed in our world today. You know, um, athletes, you know, the idea of, well, years ago when I was much younger, I used to go with the brother in the church. We'd, we'd meet 5 o'clock in the morning. I hated it. I hated it when my alarm would go off. I hated it when I'd have to get in my cold vehicle and drive down to the gym. He was so gung-ho. I was not gung-ho at all. And we would, we would work out for an hour before we started our day. And the, so 5 o'clock in the morning, there was the person who opened the door to let us in. There was me and the other fellow. And then there was a Seahawk that lived on the island. And so, you know, the three of us were working out. And what always surprised me is that the Seahawk who came in to work out at 5 o'clock in the morning, he reeked of cigarette smoke. And one time we showed up at the same time, and he was just finishing off his cigarette before he went upstairs to work out. And I thought to myself, this is a professional football player, and he's smoking. It just didn't seem right to me. Now, of course, we, you know, we've got professional swimmers that smoke pot and all sorts of things like that. But, but, but there was a time when, when, this, when a, a, an athlete lived a disciplined life. There were certain things, certain desires maybe that he or she had that they would say no to themselves. For what? Because they needed to be fit for whatever, you know, whatever their particular area was. Pastimes, they'd have to say no to these things, you know. Uh, when Tracy and I were dating, I've told this story many times, you know, I, you know, fell in love with a athlete. Her, her, she was a figure skater. She got up at four o'clock in the morning so that she could go to the ice rink, which her parents would, th- that was always so strange to me as well. So your parents pay for the whole ice rink <laughs> so that you could, for like an hour, and she goes, yes, but it's at like five in the morning. So, you know, but when we were dating, our dates ended really early because Tracy had to be in bed by seven o'clock. She was an athlete. This is something she did. This is something she loved. This is something she had been doing since she was a young girl. And this was something, but I changed everything when I came into the equation. But, but I understood that, you know, there was discipline. You, you, there's no way you're going to stay up late and then go then it becomes a waste of time and a waste of money. And so here's the thing. We are disciples of Jesus Christ. And we must be disciplined. In fact, to say I'm an undisciplined disciple, <laughs> it's because does it disciple and discipline come from the same root word? And yet, guys, you know, you think of, uh, you know, it's a disgrace when you have an athlete that does not play by the rules. Remember the guy that was letting a little air out of the football so he could grip it a little bit better and had a little bit of an advantage there? And when you hear about athletes that are doing something, they're not playing by the rules, you say, man, that's not right. They shouldn't do that. What do we say? That's not fair. 
that's not fair. But as Christians, many times, I mean, we live in an age where there are many people who profess to be Christians, but they're not playing by the rules or they're making up their own rules. In essence, they're saying, you know, I, I can do whatever I want and, and that doesn't matter. And this doesn't, you know, the, the Lord doesn't care about that. And, you, and sometimes you, you wonder to yourself, are they reading the same rule book I'm reading? Do you know what I mean by that? I'm playing with that a little bit. This is much more than a rule book. I would call this a love letter from the Lord. But it tells us how we're to live. It gives us instruction on how we're to live. Many times it's referred to as the, the manual on life as a believer, you know, how we're, how we're supposed to live as Christians. So we need to be disciplined. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we need to, we need to work out. We need to stay fit. We need to, you know, are you getting bummed out? <laughs> We need to stay strong, spiritually speaking. And we all know this to be true. But you know, guys, just like an athlete, it doesn't just happen. I mean, maybe, maybe there's that one in a million athlete that doesn't have to discipline his or her body, that doesn't have to get the sleep that they need, that could go out and do whatever they want to do and show up on the day of their you know, competition, whatever it might be, and they just shine. But I don't think there's too many people like that. And as Christians, many times we kind of almost you know, turn on the cruise control of our life after coming to faith in Christ. Our testimony seemed to stop with how we came to Jesus. But that's not really a testimony. That's just the beginning of the story. The testimony is the life that we're living. That's the testimony. And so we need to be, we need to be disciplined. Let's turn over to Philippians chapter 4. Or chapter 3, excuse me. All these scriptures, you guys know, they're so familiar to us. Look at verse 12. Again, the Apostle Paul. He says, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on. So there's a, what do you think of when you, I press on. That I may lay hold of that which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. The words there, the imagery that I have, I, you know, I picture, um, you know, the, the relay races, you know, and, and you're, you're reaching for that baton, you know, you're reaching. And the person, you know, they're still moving. They don't stop for you. They're still moving, but they're reaching back. And <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, yeah, I'm not an athlete. Sorry about that. Sorry. I, I guess I can't be so animated. That's why we need to move downstairs. I have more room up there. Don't swing my arms around. Thank you, Mario. Um, but I lost my place. Where, what was I talking about? Isn't that work? Oh, reaching for the baton, you know. Or, or I also picture, you know, the, the runner running across. And you know how those guys and gals, they get to the finish line and they just kind of stick their, they stick their chest out. It's like they want their, a part of their body to be as far as it could be so that they could be the first one to go across that line. That's what I kind of picture as I'm reading this. And he says, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward, there it is again, to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus, in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if anything, uh, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind. And it goes on from there. 
you know, uh, <laughs> the older you get, your body changes, doesn't it? I, I, um, the older I get, my body fat is up, my stamina is down. I, um, the last time I went out surfing, I think was the last time I went out, I'm going to go out surfing, I think. I was overwhelmed. And we're, I'm surfing Whidbey Island. So this, <laughs> this is not, you know, this is not big surf. But, but they, were, they were, you know, maybe four-foot waves. They were just rolling in one after another after another, which is very, very rare. We just usually don't get that. And they were all closing out just kaboom, kaboom, kaboom. And I'm... Uh, and we had to paddle way down because where we surf, we used to be able to walk through a neighborhood, but the people don't want us walking through the neighborhood anymore. So we have to paddle all the way down. And so I was, I was really tired, and I just kept getting hit and hit. And as I'm under the water, I'm realizing I have, like, the lung capacity of a flea, you know. I just, I, I cannot, I, and then I began to panic, you know, and I was thinking to myself, man, I, you know, when I was growing up, you know, I started surfing when I was 12 years old. Our family, um, ironically, except for my mother, my mother never learned how to swim. But my dad was a diver in school. My sister was on the swim team. Uh, we would go to swim meets. We were always in the water. Our life was the water. And uh, surfing, you know, my sister and I both grew up surfing. My sister surfed in amateur, you know, West Coast amateur surf contest and won back in 1978. And, you know, it was just kind of our life. And a lot of times I'd go out and I'd surf by myself. And, and this was surfing San Diego where you would have fall or winter swells that were way overhead. And, and when you're underneath, you're underneath for a while and... And you just, and, but the stamina, and I just, my mind would just say, you're going to be okay, you're going to be okay, all right? <gasps> you know. And I think, I'm not there any longer. I don't have the strength I once had. I don't have the stamina I once had. But that does not mean that I cannot or should not be as fit as I possibly can be, spiritually speaking. See, I think sometimes folks, you know, they almost, you know, you, you get older and maybe they kind of get into this retirement mode. You know, well, I, you know, I did children's ministry when I was younger and I, I just don't do that any longer. I, I used to go to church, you know, when I was younger and I'm just not doing that like I used to any longer. And I, I used to serve the Lord, and I used to go on missions, and I used to, and you kind of get into this retirement mode to where all of a sudden you, you kind of like hang up your, you know, your, your, your responsibilities. And I think we need to be so careful about that. Because, guys, listen, for most of us, I mean, again, there's this, the exception to the rule. You know, you ever see those pictures of, like, those men and women, you know? They're like, this woman is 145 years old, you know? She's like, you know, some, she looks like she's 35 or something, you know, with gray hair, you know? And, but, but those are exceptions to the rule. But our, our outer body is becoming weaker. Our outer, outer body is, is getting older. But our inner man, our inner woman, should be built up, should become stronger. Our spiritual stamina should become greater. Paul puts it in better words than I could put it. He says, therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man or woman is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. And here's the thing, guys. The older we get, I think it's easier to kind of get our priorities in order. 
you know, when, when you're younger and you're raising children, you know, when, when Tracy and I, when we had all of our kids at home, you know, five kiddos, um, when we had to, you know, our daily quiet time, I've told this before too, but we had this old Malibu station wagon, and that was our prayer closet in our driveway. And we'd take turns, you know, Tracy would say, I need some quiet time. All right, babe, you know. And she'd go out. She wouldn't go anywhere. She wouldn't drive it. She wouldn't leave the driveway. She'd just sit in the car, you know, seeing the chaos in front of the window. Got the shades. It's mom's quiet time, you know. And she'd sit out there, and she'd just pray, and she'd come in, you know, glowing because she had spent time with the Lord. And then I would go out, and that would be my time. This is before, you know, I had an office to go to. And, um, and so, you know, we would do that. And it was so needful for us. And, and yet, you know, the older you get now, Tracy and I, we get up in the morning, we have our coffee, we talk a little bit, and then we just kind of, um, you know, I'm usually over here, you know, maybe reading something or listening to something. I, I like to listen to different teachings and things like that. And Tracy's over here, and she's got her Bible open, and, and she's doing her thing. But we are feeding ourselves spiritually. We're feeding upon the Word of God so that even though the outward man, woman, may be getting older, our stamina is not what it used to be, our strength's not what it used to be, or you know, our, our memories aren't what they used to be, you know. Sometimes we get up in the morning and we forget who each other are. No, it's not that bad. But, but spiritually, I feel like, um, because it's easier now for us. But here's the thing. I guess this is what I'm trying to say. If we did not do that when we were young, raising our five children, we probably wouldn't be doing that now. So see, even though it's difficult, even though it's hard, and you say, I, I can't even get, I can't do this. I can't. Man, if it's 10 minutes, you do it, and you do it on a regular basis, and you realize, I need to do this. I, I need to be refreshed by the Lord. I need to spend time with his word. And I'll tell you, then when the opportunity comes and things begin to happen and the nest begins to you know, empty out a bit, here's the thing. Some of the most fervent praying that took place in our home is when some of our children began to leave the home and some of them were making very poor decisions. And then all of a sudden, we took on a different ministry that, frankly, we knew little about before that time, and it was the ministry of intercessory prayer. And so now you're, inter- you're interceding, you're praying for, oh, look, and you're praying for your children and that type of thing. But I'll tell you, you know, again, sometimes it feels like it's a task and it's so hard and it's so difficult, but... What the Lord is doing through this is he's training you. But see, if we, if we run to other things, I just, I just need to meditate for a while and empty my mind. What's that going to do? It's not going to change a thing. We don't empty our mind. We fill our minds with the word of God. Um, older people, you know, you don't need to move aside because you're getting older. In fact, here, here listen, older people, you're closer to the finish line, perhaps, than those around you. You should press in more. You have more time on your hands than, than the, the married couples with children and everything else. Man, you should be coming alongside them and relieving them and praying for them. And, and you should be involved in ministry. And you should be, you should be doing so. You've got more time than to sit idle. I'm afraid that too many people are are wasting time. Hebrews, you know this as well, Hebrews chapter 12, the first two verses. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Do you remember the context of chapter 12? Chapter 11. Chapter 11, the faith chapter, you have all of these people. You have, you have uh, Abel, and you have, um, you have Abraham, and you have Moses, and you have... Uh, you know, Joseph and Jacob and, and you have uh, 
Gideon and you have those that faithful remnant that marched around the city of Jericho and you have Samson and you have you have you have this cloud of witnesses that have gone before us and we look at them and we can see them and this is a wonderful thing guys because we have their stories in this book we read their stories and we say gosh lord I don't know that I would have put Sam, Samson in this category, but there he is. There he is. Faithful Samson. You know. Or Jacob, <laughs> the hill catcher, you know. There he is. Or how about this one, Isaac? Do you guys realize when you read the book of Genesis, it's like, what did Isaac do? But he's in there. He's in the hall of faith. He is part of that cloud of witnesses. And so it says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside or put away every weight. Remember the athletes. In fact, um, do you know, I, oh, let me finish this and then I'll go back to that because I think it's interesting. So let us uh, lay aside every weight and sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run. Here's that other, another athletic illustration. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the Father. I'm sorry, the right hand of the throne of God. Excuse me. I love that. The writer of Hebrews says, look, look, we're surrounded by this cloud of witnesses. But look forward. Look forward to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Look at him. Look what he endured. And it's like this motivation to be faithful, to do what the Lord has called us to do, you know. If you will, to play by the rules, not to make up our own silly rules but to be faithful to the Lord. I had opened tonight with 1 Timothy chapter 4. We read some verses there. Um, exercise yourself toward godliness. The word exercise, the Greek word that's used there is the, from that word, from the Greek word, we get our word gymnasium. But it also, now this is going to be weird. But it also means to practice naked. Practice naked, what does that mean? I was reminded when I read this, when it says that we're to, we're to set aside, we're to put away every weight and sin which so easily ensnares us. And we're reminded that in the ancient games, Many of the athletes, they were practiced, they weren't completely naked, but they were almost naked as they would compete. They had no cleats. They had no, you know, when they would wrestle, they had nothing that might encumber them, might snare them up, you know, trip them up or anything. And and the, the imagery that we have there is don't let there be anything that's going to get in your way. Don't think of it in a nasty way. Think of it more in a practical way. Just remove anything that might, that might hinder you from doing what the Lord has called you to do. I know Nate, last week he read 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and, you know, the competing and, you know, everyone who competes for the prize is temperate. It means to exercise self-control in all things and it goes on there. Would you go back to Timothy chapter 4, 1 Timothy? Let's see.
you know, I, I actually wrote down the wrong address, and I'm trying to remember. It's not First Timothy, it's Second Timothy. I have fought. Let me just read it. I have it down here. I do, I'm sorry I don't have the address. I have fought the good fight, Paul says. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all, or to yeah, all who have loved his appearing. Do you know who else gets the crown of righteousness, according to James? Those who endure temptation, crown of righteousness. I like that. Paul, I have fought, I have fought the good fight. I like that. I have fought the good fight. You know, um, I don't like the am I you know the, the cage fighting. I don't like that. That's too brutal. It um, I'm an old guy. So there were certain things we were told never to do. <laughs> you, you don't kick people in certain places. And yet these guys are just, you know, mean and I mean, doing everything they can to dominate their opponent, you know. I, I've never liked that personally. It's, it, it's disgusting to me. Now, in saying that, I always liked boxing, now, I know boxing can be brutal. You know, I think of some of the, 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 <laughs> the heroes, the heavyweight champions of the world, you know. A lot of them have brain damage because, you know, your brain can only take so many hits. You know, you, know, you can only take so many hits to the head. But um, when I was a kid, my dad had a friend that he brought home. It was actually a friend of his brother's. And... Uh, the fellow's name was Jerry Corey. Jerry Corey. He, his uh, boxing name, what was his boxing name? He was Irish. So it was the, um, and it was the city. Uh, oh, anyway. Jerry Corey, he fought Muhammad Ali. Uh, he was a heavyweight boxer. I think at the end of his life, he was selling motorhomes somewhere in Los Angeles. You know, it's kind of the, the fate of athletes, you know, that your body gives out after a while. And, um, you know, you, you look at a, you know, an athlete, you look at a boxer and the training that they go through, you know, uh, you got to know how to hit, but you also have to know how to take a hit, Right. And so that's why a lot of times when they're sparring, you know, they're, they're taking blows. Because if you don't know how to take a hit, the first time you get hit, you're going down. And, um, and so they're training themselves. Speed is important. In boxing, staying on your toes is important. Uh, remember, those of you that know anything about boxing, you don't want to ever be flat-footed. You're flat-footed. Your opponent knows you're done. I got you. You're, you're on your feet. And uh, you're, you're slowing down and everything. And as Christians, as disciples, we need to be men and women who are on our toes. You, that's where that term comes from, you know, on our toes. And we need to be agile. And we need to be ready for whatever may come. Because our foes are not flesh and blood. You know where I'm going with this, don't you? Ephesians chapter 6. Turn there, we'll close with that. Ephesians chapter 6. Again, Paul, in all of his athletic illustrations, are wonderful. Paul writes in chapter 6 and verse 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. This is why that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, 
Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand, verse 14, stand therefore, and then it goes on and it gives the, the armor of God. I, uh, another thing that goes when you get older is your eyesight. Um, I, I have, I've had many Bibles over the decades that I've walked with Jesus and over the decades that I've been a pastor of this church. And it's interesting how, um, and I give a lot of Bibles away, so it's not like I just have this, you know, library of Bibles. Um, but if I'm talking to somebody and they, you know, they don't have a Bible, so I'll give them my Bible. And I'll say, uh, my, I have notes in the Bible. Sorry about that. I wrote in my Bible because I write in my Bibles. Um, I, I hope that you guys do that, that, you're, that you're, the Lord is speaking to you. You're writing things. Write it in pencil because you might get a better understanding later on. And the eraser always works well to erase things that you've written in the past. But I was looking this morning because I was thinking of this scripture, this exhortation. It really is an exhortation. You know, Ephesians, it's written, it's got six chapters. Paul never put a chapter in, never put a verse in. He just wrote the letter. But in our Bibles, it's broken up into halves. You've got the first three chapters. It's our position in Christ Jesus. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly. I mean, these glorious, glorious things, these glorious realities for the child of God. Last three chapters are, this then is how you should live. So then the application, how should we live therefore? And so he comes to the end of this epistle and he, it's like a, um, you know, it's like a, a father talking to a son or like a, you know, a general talking to the troops or, or whatever. It's a, it's a charge. It's not a suggestion. It's a charge. Um, you know, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord. Okay, how do we do that, you know? Well, of course, you look back, and he's already been dealing with that, how we could be strong in the Lord, walking in the light, walking in love, all of these different things that we read in the epistle. But I had written down this lengthy note in my Bible, and I was trying to read it this morning, and I, I could barely read it. Because my eyesight, and anyone who's ever seen or ever received one of my Bibles and my notes, they always come up to me and say, how do you write so small? And now writing small hasn't done anything for me because I can't read what I've written many times. So I, I, I tried to uh, enlarge it today, but I guess modern day printers don't enlarge, huh? No. So anyway, I, I did get the note down, and here it is. Two essential components. Strong in the Lord, verse 10. Put on, verse 11. If you take a weak man or woman who can barely stand and put the best armor on them, they'll still be ineffective soldiers. Be strong means to empower. Might means forcefulness. Power means Our power is the exercise of might. God's might does not work in me as I sit passively. His might works in us as we rely on it, rely on him. As we step out and do the work that he's called us to do. And then there's the question at the end. If I'm not willing to get up, step out, do what he called me to do, Do I really need his might and power? And I think you guys know the answer to that. Father, we pray that we would be the men and women that you want us to be, Lord. That we'd be disciplined men and women. That we'd realize it's not a school, it's not sitting under a mentor, it's sitting under you, Lord. It's being men and women of your word 
It's believing what your word says in the good times and in the bad times. It's believing what your word says and not coming up with our own silly, vain imaginations. That falls under the category of old wives' tales. We're sorry, Lord, that there's so many old wives' tales in the church today. But we pray, Father, that we would, without apology, say this is what the word of God says. Therefore, by God's grace, I'm going to stand upon these truths. Father, I pray that each one of us would take this exhortation that we're ending with from the Apostle Paul to be strong, to stand, to stand. How we're to do that, what that looks like. Pray, Father, that you would help us to do what we're told to do in your word. Especially in light of the days in which we live. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. We look around Lord, at this world that we live in, and we see things around us that are so absolutely bizarre, and, and, and really, frankly, they're demonic things all around us. People are so confused, it's demonic. They're listening to deceiving spirits. They're buying into doctrines of demons. And we pray, Father, that we would Realize that you've given us everything we need to keep from falling, to keep from giving in to these things. But Lord, would you remind us that it's up to us that you've given us your spirit, you've given us your word, you've given us salvation. But you expect us to do something with it. And so I pray, Father, that we, if, we've, if, we're, if our hands have gone limp, if our knees have begun to buckle under the pressure of life and we're no longer in the race, we're no longer fighting the fight, the good fight, we're no longer reaching for or stretching toward We pray, Father, that we'd repent even tonight and get back at it. Would you help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.